Witness Docs from Stitcher. In December of 2006, I had begun noting that I was having spotting in between my periods. I thought at first, well, I'm 49 years old. It's probably premenopause. So I went to Sanford Health. I met a nurse practitioner there, and she gave me a thorough exam. And then she said, you know, just to play this safe, let's get a transvaginal ultrasound. I never had one of those before. And they put the wand up the vagina, and they're looking around, and the lady's showing me on the screen. So this is your left ovary. And now we're moving over to the... The room went silent. What's wrong? Uh, yeah, well, this is your right ovary over here, and um, I'll be back in just a few minutes. So I got dressed, and the door opened, and in walks a nurse practitioner. And she comes over, and she sits down right next to me and puts her hand on my knee. And I knew right then that something was not right. And she looked at me, and she goes, um... You have what appears to be maybe a hemorrhagic cyst on your ovary. Oh, okay. But we can't rule out a tumor. Well, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I was crying. I mean, I really thought, oh my gosh, this could be cancer. Where did this come from? My mother doesn't have cancer. My father doesn't have cancer. Familial, no. Previous, no. High-fat Western diet, no. Use of talc baby powder in genital area. What? Welcome to Season 2 of Verified. I'm Natasha Del Toro. The woman you just heard from is someone you're going to get to know pretty well throughout this series. Her name is Dean Berg. She's a tough, no-nonsense physician assistant. But just imagine how terrified she was in that moment, learning that she could have cancer. That's one of the scariest things you can hear when you go in for a checkup, that there's a tumor growing inside you. After the initial shock, Dean did what a lot of us would do. Try to make sense of it. To look for answers. So she started to investigate her body like a crime scene, a mystery that she set out to solve. And what she found put her on a collision course with one of the most iconic and trusted brands in the world. It's a battle that could affect millions of people about what is safe and what's not, and who decides anyway. To understand how it all started, you have to hear Dean's story. And what happened after that nurse practitioner spotted something suspicious on her ovaries during that ultrasound? Within a few days, the surgeon's office had me come in, and he talked to me, and he said, Don't worry, I highly doubt it's cancer. We'll take your ovaries out and I'll call you up and we'll get together and I'll let you know the biopsy results. But don't worry, it's nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about? That's not how Dean was feeling. 
she decided to listen to her doctor's advice and tried her best to stop thinking about the cyst on her ovary. It was just before Christmas, so she went shopping, she baked cookies, and got ready for the holidays with her two college-age daughters and her husband, Jim. And still continuing on with my normal life, trying not to be too upset about it. I didn't tell anyone about it. Just Jim knew that was it. We even went out and bought a car because we needed a new car at that time. Uh, And we traded in our old car. And I remember being in the dealership and we were just joking around. And, you know, it was just life going on because we were trying not to think it was anything bad. The day after Christmas of 2006, she had an operation to remove her ovaries. The surgery took a couple of hours, and she went home the next day. And right after the new year, the doctor called to give her the biopsy results. But he didn't want to do it over the phone. So we went to the doctor's office, and he was sitting at his big desk, and he just had this look on his face, that medical look of, you know, I hate to tell you this, but. And he had the pathology report on his desk and he turned it around so I could see it as a medical person. And he goes, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have bilateral ovarian cancer. And I said, what? And I looked at the pathology report and I could see what was on there. And he goes, I'm so sorry. I never, ever expected this to be the diagnosis. And we both started crying. He was crying. And he said, look, I'll leave you guys alone for a few minutes and let this sink in. I'll be back. And he left. And I just sat there, poorly differentiated grade three of three serious carcinoma, right and left, ovaries. I'm not a pathologist, but the main thing was the grade three of three, which meant that it was, you know, it was advanced. Dean knew this was really bad news. As a physician assistant, she could diagnose and treat patients, order tests, and prescribe medication she knew ovarian cancer was one of the deadliest. It kills more than 60% of the women who have it. When you get the diagnosis, your head is just literally spinning with the main thing, death. That's the first thing that was really on my mind. I was going to die because my first husband had died. Dean's been happily married to Jim, her second husband, since 2004. Her first husband, Bob, was diagnosed with cancer less than a year after they divorced and died within months. He was the father of their two children. They'd been married 18 years. So despite the split, Dean was devastated by his death. And so were her two daughters. Now she worried they'd lose another parent. So I began preparing in my head, um, you know, this is going to be the end, then we got to start thinking about things. And so my husband and I went to a funeral home. We looked around at caskets and cremation where I could be buried. And in all of this, she couldn't help but wonder, why was this happening to her? It was so strange. She was a healthy person. 
had always taken good care of herself. She ate well, she exercised, never smoked, didn't drink, and no one in her family had ovarian cancer. And again, because of her medical background, she knew this kind of cancer was often hereditary. It just didn't make sense. Her oncologist told her she'd need to have a second operation. This time, a total hysterectomy followed by chemotherapy. She had her notebook there and she slammed the notebook shut and she said, that means no work for you. And I said, no work, why? She goes, because your immunity system is going to be very bad. You can't be around sick patients. And I said, but I can't work? Then what? And she goes, well, it's the way it is. You're going to have to be on chemotherapy for six months. It's going to be cisplatin and taxol. And we're going to have to put in a portacath in your chest and a portacath in your abdomen. My mind was just in a state of shock. They gave me a big notebook full of information. The nurses were, you know, really kind. They were hugging me and everything. The day of her hysterectomy finally came. She was nervous when she went to the hospital. But the surgery went well. She had a couple of weeks to heal. And then the chemotherapy treatments began. It was like knives going through your abdomen constantly. And the more the IV would go on, it just would continue. This intense pain all through from your diaphragm all the way down into your pelvis. Because that chemotherapy was running right into your abdominal cavity. The other chemo was going in my chest, which was then going throughout the whole body. But the main bad chemo was really going into my abdomen and freely flowing all over my organs. The pain lasted for as long as they did the chemotherapy. It took hours for each treatment. She lost her appetite. She lost her hair. And she got progressively weaker. After each treatment, she'd be out of the hospital for a few weeks. And just when she started feeling a little bit better, she'd have to go back in for another round of chemo that would wallop her all over again. Coping with serious illness was not new to Dean. She treated many veterans with cancer at the VA hospital where she worked in Sioux Falls. And she always tried to give them as much information about their illness as she could. Now she was the sick one, and she wanted to learn as much as possible about her cancer and what might have caused it. So on her good days, when she was feeling up to it, Dean started pouring through the reading materials the nurses gave her at the hospital. It's a big gray binder stuffed with documents and pamphlets. This is the big notebook. Chemotherapy, (laughs) patient education manual. And this is what you're handed that day. This whole notebook. This was the folder I got. And these were booklets about dealing with chemotherapy, the side effects, um, how long do they last, what can I eat, um, how to cope with it, how do I care for my scalp and hair, a variety of things. But there was one pamphlet that really caught Dean's attention. It was called Myths and Facts About Ovarian Cancer. This is the Gildner Radner book. P. 
people usually remember comedian Gilda Radner for her outlandish characters in the early days of Saturday Night Live. What many people don't know is that Gilda Radner died of ovarian cancer in 1989, and that after her death, her husband Gene Wilder and her family worked to raise awareness and promote research into the causes of the disease. Gilda wanted to help other women. We'll get to find out what we're actually made of or how brave we are. Here she is in a documentary about her life called Love, Gilda. I kept thinking there must be a purpose to this somewhere, that a comedian who does, you know, Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana, and all this stupid stuff gets the most unfunny thing in the world. How am I going to get people to laugh about it, to be able to speak the words, to be able to not be afraid to be treated for it? Gildner Radner, Familial Ovarian Cancer Registry. It was in this pamphlet that Dean came across some information about her cancer that she'd never heard before, not in her medical training and not in her own work with cancer patients. I was flipping through here, what is ovarian cancer? What causes ovarian cancer? Because I began to say to myself, where did this come from? My mother doesn't have cancer. My father doesn't have cancer. No one in my family did except my two grandparents who smoked and got lung cancer. So I'm looking familial, no, okay. Previous, no. High-fat Western diet, no. Use of talc baby powder in genital area. What? Talc has been implicated in the development of ovarian cancer because it appears in many personal hygiene products and is related to asbestos a known cancer-causing agent. The theory is that talc particles travel to the ovary through the cervix, line the uterus and fallopian tubes, and result in toxic effects on the ovary. And then I realized, oh no, this is what I've been using since I was 16 years old. ran into the bathroom, picked up the baby powder, Johnson & Johnson, looked it all over. There's no warning. There's no nothing. And I said, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. And I took the baby powder and threw it into the wastebasket and said, I'm never using this again. Dean was 49 years old. She had been using baby powder as part of her daily routine for more than 30 years. I used to get chafing problems a lot, so that's what I used it for. And then as I got older, of course, Shower to Shower was advertised on TV for women. A sprinkle a day keeps the odor away, and you're supposed to smell so wonderful as a woman, and this was all supposed to help that. And I thought of all the other ways I had probably gotten baby powder. I used to dust the diaphragm back when I was younger and use a diaphragm for birth control because I never used birth control pills. And I kept thinking, why didn't I know about this? Why isn't this out in public? Why has this never been talked about before? And it's still on the market. Shower to shower for women. And I picked that bottle up that I had and right on it, talc. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's talcum powder in this too. And it's like, I don't believe this. 
she thought, how could a powder made for babies that you can buy in every drugstore, how could this same powder that she's been sprinkling on her underwear all of these years be possibly linked to cancer? Why had she never heard about this? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Dean completed her treatment in May 2007, the day after her 50th birthday. She was given a certificate, which is a common way for survivors to mark the milestone. But her doctor also warned her the cancer might recur within the year. By June, she felt well enough to go back to work part-time and to resume her research on the potential link between talc and ovarian cancer. She read studies, she spent hours on the internet, and she even reached out to prominent researchers working in the field. She was determined to find out how this happened. Around the same time, in another state more than a thousand miles away, someone else was also researching the potential risks of talcum powder. Alan Smith was a young lawyer working on civil liability cases in Gulfport, Mississippi. On weekends, he would drive three hours to visit his family in Jackson. We'd go to church and have Sunday lunch at my parents' house. That was kind of a routine. And on one Sunday... Alan's dad, Robert Smith, told him about this strange thing that happened at work recently. And he said to me, hey, Alan, I wanted to let you know that one of the largest cosmetic manufacturers in the world in New York called me, and they were looking for a replacement for talc. And so I signed an NDA with them, a non-disclosure agreement, <clears throat> for me to send my powder form of my wound care product to this cosmetic company Dr. Smith had practiced medicine for more than 40 years, and he also had a company that designed medical products like ointments and powders for wound care. The manufacturer who called him said the industry was worried that talc would soon be regulated by the government, that they wouldn't be allowed to use it in their products anymore. They wanted to find a substitute. Dr. Smith's researchers worked for months to develop a replacement for talc. As we were finishing up the uh, uh, milling process, and he told me never mind to not continue to work on that project, that uh, things had uh, cleared themselves up, I was uh, a bit disturbed since we had spent a good bit of money on the milling process, and <laughs> he offered no compensation. I just asked him, I said, why in the world, did, what's going on? To Dr. Smith. It seemed like the company wasn't worried about government regulation anymore. 
it didn't need the replacement for talc. He listened uh, very intently and and just uh, basically asked me if uh, if he could pursue the uh, situation, and I said, certainly you can. Alan had spent the last few years representing men who got sick from inhaling silica dust while sandblasting the rust off ships without proper protective equipment. It causes scarring in the lungs, permanent scarring, incurable scarring called silicosis. It's one of the oldest known occupational lung diseases. It really upset me um, to learn that there were corporations out there, these respirator companies, that knew that their products did not work in the sandblasting environment. And these guys, these workers were out there working their ass off, doing hard manual labor under extreme conditions. And that's when a fire lit in me about products liability litigation, about a corporation that has knowledge that would knowingly hurt the users, the customers that was using the product for money. That's when law came alive to me. And after that lunch with his father, Alan wondered if there might be a similar safety issue with talc. I went back to my house on the Gulf Coast and I immediately got on the internet and started looking this up. And I could absolutely not believe what I found. He'd taken pre-med classes in college before switching over to law. And now, as he started digging into medical studies online, those classes came in pretty handy. It seemed like some of the studies were suggesting a link between talc and ovarian cancer. So he kept reading and reading. And then he looked to see if there'd been any lawsuits related to talc. I was like... There's no way I'm the first person that's looked at this. There's no way with all the lawyers in the world, these studies have been out there since 1982. And I mean, we're talking 20 years later when I'm looking at it, over 20 years later. I'm like, there's no way. I Google talc litigation and ovarian cancer. I do all this, you know, every iteration you can do of talc, ovarian cancer litigation, this, that, and the other, nothing pops up. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I just, it just absolutely astonished me. All Alan could think about was that talc was such a common product. I mean, it's in everyone's home. How could this potentially be hurting women and the public not know about it? To really grasp the science behind this, he was going to need more than basic pre-med. He needed real medical expertise. What I figured out on the front end is that there was a guy named Daniel Kramer who was the first author, scientist to author the first epidemiological study in the United States and ever on talc and the risk of ovarian cancer. So I figured what better way to understand what's going on and as uneducated I was about epidemiology and, and this field, I said, I'm going to get on a plane on my own dime. I'm going to go see Dr. Kramer. And he graciously allowed me to come to Boston and sit down with him over a few days and talk to him. And after I left that meeting, I was convinced I was onto something huge that there was something really big going on here that nobody knew about. 
In Sioux Falls, Dean spent hours on her computer. She found an article about a petition created by doctors and healthcare workers asking the government to require a warning label for baby powder. She also joined a support group that she found online, the Ovarian Cancer National Alliance. She wanted to know how many other women were out there like her. So she posted on the group's message board, asking if any other women thought that maybe they had gotten their cancer from talc. None of the other women in the group replied. But then she got a call from a lawyer. I was contacted by Alan Smith. He called me. And at first, I thought it was some type of a hoax. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in my office, and it was about 6 o'clock, and I went and just checked the blog because I regularly did that. But I noticed that a lady posted a blog as I was sitting there, and it said, my name is Dean Berg. I'm from South Dakota. I said, um, you know, who are you? And he goes, oh, I'm a lawyer down in Mississippi, and um, I've been really doing a lot of research on talcum powder and ovarian cancer, and what would you think about maybe getting together to talk about this? I said, well, before we do anything, Mr. Smith, you send me all your credentials and proof that you are who you are before I'm going to tell you anything. By now, Alan had his own law practice in a small town called Ridgeland. He'd been researching talc for about three years but he didn't have a client yet. Dean was skeptical. Here was this lawyer trolling cancer support groups. And she did grill me. And if you know Miss Berg, she's a very matter-of-fact woman. She doesn't mince her words. She doesn't uh, talk a lot like I do. Um, she's very direct. So, yes, uh, she did cross-examine and interview me before um, I had the opportunity to represent her. In the mail came this packet with all his information, Alan Smith, legit lawyer from Mississippi with all this information. I said, well, I hemmed and hawed at first because I really don't like to get involved in a lawsuit, especially against Johnson & Johnson. But I said, okay, look, I'll talk with you, all right? The best way to tell if Dean had a case was to find strong medical evidence linking her cancer to her use of talc. Based on his conversations with Dr. Kramer, Alan knew there was one way to get that evidence. But it wasn't going to be easy. First, he had to convince Dean to give him access to all of her medical records. Then, they had to track down her ovaries. Alan informed me that they were able to get my ovarian tissue sample from Sanford and that they were going to be able to test it for talcum powder. I didn't even know that that could be done. I thought, what would they be saving it for, you know, back from 2007? They take pieces or blocks of tissue from the right ovary, the left ovary, from the right fallopian tube, from the left fallopian tube, from pelvic lymph nodes, and they will save those for a time period and keep those blocks at the healthcare facility um, in case they're ever needed later for anything, genetic testing or just for anything. They do it out of precaution. 
Allen went back to Dr. Kramer at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and asked if his team would test Dean's tissues for talc. It would be the first time anyone tried to prove the link between talc and ovarian cancer in a court of law. In reviewing her case, she fit with all the features we had previously described. An invasive serous cancer at a relatively young age, a long history of talc use, and uh, the likelihood that we would find it in her tissue. Because I had been studying this for the past 30 years and I felt there was a causal relationship between the two. First, Dr. Kramer's team asked Dean's Hospital in South Dakota for the slides containing tissues from her ovaries. They looked at the slides and they thought they saw talc particles in her tissue, but they weren't quite sure. So they called the hospital back and asked for the original tissue removed from Dean's ovaries three years earlier. Allen believed the case hinged on what was found in those samples. That would just be really powerful, irrefutable evidence of, first of all, that the client used the product because it's there. You're not born with talc in your ovaries. But he also knew that if they didn't find any talc, they wouldn't have much of a case at all. And I told her on the front end, we might do this investigation and uh, determine that you don't have a case. We could arrive there. Next time, Dean gets some surprising test results, and she has a big decision to make. So stay with us. Dust Up, our second season of Verified, is reported by Sandra Bartlett and Jim Morris. It's written and produced by me, Natasha Del Toro, Sandra Bartlett, Tracy Samuelson, Suzanne Reber, and senior producer Dan Bloom. Additional production by Grant Hill and Claire Rawlinson. Our editors are Peter Clowney, Tracy Samuelson, and Ellen Weiss. Engineering by Casey Holford and Dan Bloom. Our theme and original music are by Allison Leighton Brown. Special thanks to the many women and men who spoke with us on and off the microphone about this story, which spans decades. Verified is created by Suzanne Reber and executive produced by Suzanne Reber, Ellen Weiss, Peter Clowney, and Chris Bannon. The show is produced by the Scripps Washington Bureau in collaboration with Witness Docs, a Stitcher network. If you want to listen to early releases of our verified episodes, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com. You can use promo code WITNESS for one month free. There's so much for you to discover about this story and what's coming up on the show. You can find us on Twitter at Verpod and at VerifiedPod on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have a story to tell us, send us a voicemail or an email to verifiedpod at stitcher.com. If you like the show and believe in this kind of storytelling, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people discover Verified. Thanks for listening. I'm Natasha Del Toro, and this is Verified. Verified.